You're listening to Road to CEO, nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, I'm here today with Kristen Carbone, the CEO of Brilliantly, which helps women deal with the long-term physical and emotional needs resulting from mastectomy. We're going to hear from her all about her company, how it started, and her journey in business, and we're going to jump in right now. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we start at the beginning, and why don't you tell us uh, what is Brilliantly? Yeah, so I started Brilliantly in 2017. Um, it was in an effort to solve a problem I was having myself. My mom died from metastatic breast cancer in her 40s. And a few years later, I decided to have a preventative mastectomy and reconstruction. And that sort of launched me into the space, um, the breast cancer community in a way that I hadn't been before. And over the years of kind of silently suffering with some of the side effects and consequences of having a mastectomy, started asking other women questions and really looking for answers to problems I was having and some I could find and some I couldn't find. And that led to starting the business. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the product, but really happy to be part of this tide change in women's health and so excited about all of the online communities that have come up. And I'm, I'm just delighted to be part of it. I'm looking forward to hearing about the communities that you're a part of. Um, it's not, so there's a real social impact, though, with this with this business. Yeah, for sure. And my background is in the arts. I'm definitely a social impact minded person. I had an idea for a product and, you know, confirmed product market fit within the breast cancer community, but really felt like I couldn't just make a product. This, this had to be sort of a whole person experience if it was going to be the thing that occupied all of my time. So um, I'm, I'm really driven to help meet these like quality of life issues that people face. And I know women face them at every different milestone. So many things happen I, for men too. I don't mean to be exclusive, but you know, we get our period and we, some, some of us have babies and some of us have chronic health issues. And we all eventually, if we live long enough, go through menopause and each of those moments comes with a little bit of an identity shift. And some of those things aren't things that your doctor is going to talk you through. You want to talk to other women who've been through it. Um, you know, read articles, listen to podcasts, all of these different things, and really felt like in addition to making a product, we had to, to be a resource for the community mm -hmm. in a real way. So what is the product exactly? Yeah, one of the um, very odd outcomes of the surgical procedure was that I feel cold all the time. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine a breast implant without any breast tissue insulating it and keeping it at room temperature, it acts like a heat sink. Like if you just put a water balloon under your shirt and started walking around and you were in the Northeast and it was wintertime, it would feel cold. And if you went into a swimming pool or into the ocean and got out, it would stay cold. It takes a lot of energy to heat up the mass of an implant. And we have this great thermographic photo that I like to show people who are kind of having a hard time. It's a hard problem to understand if you don't have it. But if you, you know, take a picture of any person's torso, they're warm and red. Like this is the part of your body that you have to keep warm to stay alive. And if you take a picture of a woman with implants, especially if she's had reconstruction, she's blue. Um, it's really crazy. And immediately people are like, oh, I can see that. I understand it. And um, the product is meant to address that problem. Women who have this issue 
and I've talked to hundreds of them now, do all kinds of crazy things to feel warmer, not just like putting on another layer, but like putting those glove warmers hot hands into your bra, which are definitely not safe. They're a chemical. They get way too hot to be against skin that doesn't have sensation intact. Even just like an electric blanket that plugs into a wall gets way too hot to have directly on your skin, especially in an area where you can't feel if it's burning you. Mm. So we designed Brilliantly Warm. I'm actually wearing it now. I can yank it out. I just did a product demo and kept it in. Um, it's meant to slip easily into any bra. Um, it's very safe. It's temperature regulated. It's meant for all day wear. It goes through cycles of warming and cooling. So it protects your skin. It keeps the battery life longer. And it's controlled by an app. So we made this with discretion in mind. Like if you're somebody who needs it. You can put it on in the morning, if you get on the subway, if you get to your office, if you go to the grocery store, if you're watching your kids play outside, that you can just pick up your phone, do this now socially acceptable gesture, and turn it on and feel good and not have to like be uh, visibly bundled or stick your hand in your shirt like I just did. Um, but that it's meant to be something that's discreet and easy and a solution no matter what outfit or bra you're wearing. I see, that's fascinating. Um, so this really was a mission driven I mean, you clearly had personal experience. And, and so did you develop the product yourself? Did you bring a team together? How did, how did that happen? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one of my closest friends does special effects for movies. Um, I used to work in the arts. I'm not an engineer. He's not, also not an engineer, but um, has sort of a deep material knowledge. We didn't end up using the fabric that he found, but he found a, it looked similar. It was a black fabric. It was treated with a carbon solution, so it was conductive. It could have conducted all kinds of things, including heat. Mm -hmm. And he, he was like, we could make you something to wear out of this. And I was like, well, I don't want a coat or a jacket, and I certainly don't want to try to make a bra. Can we just make a thing that fits into any bra? And we did, but it, because we're not engineers, it was hooked up to a big drill battery. So it worked, but it had all of these cords. There's a lot of funny pictures of me walking around with like a bunch of cords coming out of my shirt and then a DeWalt drill battery on the table. Um, I did eventually find an engineering firm that really was more of an industrial design firm, but does all kinds of projects and switched during COVID to an engineering team out of that's in Florida that, um, primarily does medical devices. You know, we wanted to, even though it's not a regulated product, we wanted to design towards those safety standards, um, and have people who really understood the needs of someone who's had a medical experience and that specific community. So, um, I work with a team of really amazing engineers who've done such a good job and are so enthusiastic. I met them for the first time in person a couple of weeks ago. Um, we started working together during COVID and I literally met every single person who touched these. Um, they were hand assembled in Florida. So there was an entire team there wow. putting them together, soldering, laser cutting, you know, every single step of it got done there. And I met everybody who touched it, which was amazing. That sounds awesome. Uh, I'm sure that was really meaningful to meet the the people who were doing that. Yeah, it, it really was. You know, I see them on Zoom. We interact this way all the time with so many people, especially post-COVID. And it just, there was, to see the space that I see just like in, in the screen was so good. And I saw lots of the different projects that they're working on. And of course, like on a weekly call, I don't meet the woman who was soldering all the boards. And it was so great to like look her in the eye and say thank you. And for her to say, this is one of the only projects I've worked on that's like exclusively for women and designed by a woman and how appreciative different people were for their role in that. And 
you know, it, it's just nice to know that people are enthusiastic about what you're doing from soup to nuts. Yeah. So let's talk about, there's so many different directions I, I, I would like to go in the conversation, but why don't we start with, with that comment about how it's, it's designed by women. It's, you know, it's conceived by, by a woman. Um, was it difficult to get funding? Was it difficult to, you know, was it difficult to kind of put this all together because, you know, a lot of the funders are not, won't have had the personal experience that you've had, you know, what, what was that like? Yeah. And this is like through the rosiest glasses of hindsight, right? Because I'm in a moment where I'm not currently fundraising, but there's, it's, it's really hard to be a woman raising capital, like 4% of venture funding. Mm -hmm. And I think that's might be inflated. I feel like it's between two and three, but let's say four, let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt because I think it's getting better goes to, to female founders. Mm -hmm. And I'm a non-technical female founder who's not a business person and I'm working in women's health. And there's so much missing data in women's health. Um, drug studies, safety studies, efficacy, all of these things until very recently happened without considering the diversity of even just including women in those studies. And if it was an exclusively women's issue, there was almost no data on it. So this issue about sensation and breasts, the very first study on it is happening right now out of the University of Chicago. Like, how do we not know those things? You know, there's, it, it was really difficult to go into a meeting and to say with any confidence, this is the market size even, because we don't know because no one studied it, because who's going to make money from that study? And I learned so much about what people will invest in, why they invest in it. Um, I, I had no idea when I started this, that investors weren't just investors, that people hyper-specialized, like this person invests exclusively in fintech and that person invests in software and this person invests in education and sustainability or pick a thing. And there are many people now who are, because all of these statistics about how difficult it is for women to get funded and how well we do with less money and how our outcomes are better, the more money is, is coming down the pipeline, which is great. And more women are becoming investors, but typically they write smaller checks. So when I first started, I spent probably a year talking to the wrong kinds of investors for the phase I was at, for the product that I was making, and eventually realized I wanted to talk to women who had a connection to the cause, who were high net worth, who believed in me, who believed in the product, mm -hmm. and who understood not just the technology and the product that I wanted to make, but the future for that product, the future market, and what it means to have your like everyday quality of needs met as a woman and how the impact of that for you on your work, on your family, on your community, there's just this enormous ripple effect. And so um, it took a really long time, but I have women on my cap table from in their 20s to in their 90s. And um, of course, have a lot of men who've supported me as well. But the finding the right kind of funding was really difficult. And I still struggle with it now. I'm going out to start another round. And you know, you know this, you talk to lots of CEOs and people who are in the startup community, you hear about like one or two potential paths and you hear about the success stories. And then like as a little caveat, oh, also lots of people fail, but nobody really talks about all the diversity in the kinds of funding that are out there. And so I think it's taken a, an enormous amount of effort actually, to be perfectly honest, to figure out what kind of money do I want now yeah. to make sure that it aligns with my business, with my mission, and with me, because depending on what kind of money you take, it can run your life. And, and that's important for people to remember that 
anyone who owns a business, it, it's a huge part of their life. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my first business, um, which I raised money for, um, it was in education technology. And I didn't even really understand that education technology was a specialty at first. And but there are education technology investors. And, you know, they, you know, basically, they're the ones who fund all of this. So, so basically, there are people who specialize in medical technology and and those types of things. What did you find that there were a, investors that were adjacent to this in to to this field, or did did you get people just who were kind of connected to the cause and and believed in you? More connected to the cause, honestly, because people who are interested in health tech typically are interested in regulated devices or things that are going to be B two B or go directly to a hospital or are implanted device, you know, the, the medical device is a big category and we're not technically a medical device, but we're, we're tertiary and we deal mm -hmm. with this medical issue. So we were a little outside the comfort zone or sometimes a lot for some of those investors. And until now, it really has been people who are high net worth individuals who have mm -hmm. a tie to the cause or to me. Okay. So, um, uh, and you said you're starting another round pretty soon. Is there any details you want to give on that or? Uh, yeah, that... You know, this is going to be like hopefully a proper seed round that supports me building a team. Um, the second round of manufacturing, some R&D. Uh, there's a patent portfolio. You know, we could, the, the legal side of being a CEO is really fascinating too. I've just learned so much about that. We're filing um, our patent application today actually in, Europe, UK, and US, which is super exciting. It's taking exciting. to do that. And we basically are starting that life cycle all over again to build out a patent portfolio. So, um, you know, looking probably at a three to $5 million round this time and hoping to have, you know, maybe two years of runway so I don't have to do it again for a minute mm -hmm. and can build the team and do all the good work that there is to be done. So what stage, and actually, why don't we back up for a moment and say, what is the timeline of the company? When did you start it? And, um, and then... Uh, at what point and did, because uh, I think you started it maybe a year or two before COVID. Is that right? Yeah, we built that proof of concept that was hooked to the drill battery in the spring of 2017. Mm -hmm. And I spent that whole summer talking to women in the community to find out if people, other people needed it. And then in the fall of 2017, made a list of all the things that I stink at. And the people who I knew who were good at those things that were related to business and invited them over for dinner and asked them to help. And so I, that was really the first moment where I was like, do you guys think this could be a business? Do you think I could be a CEO? Would you help me get there? And thankfully people said yes to all of those questions. And I incorporated in the fall of 2017, but didn't really get going on R and D with engineers until, um, early 2018. Okay. And so, okay. So 20, so 2018, you got, into the R&D stage. What happened when COVID hit? Was that, did that negatively affect things or was that not really much of an so issue much. for you? Um, I think you'd probably be hard pressed to talk to any CEO or founder <laughs> yeah. that it didn't impact negatively. We really, unfortunately, our timeline, we, we did our first major round of user testing where we mailed out units to women across the country as far as Germany, a um, couple in the UK, got a ton of feedback and that phase ended in February of 2020. So wow. my timeline was really like, we're going to do this 
We're going to test it. We're going to learn what we need to change and iterate on. And then I'm going to fundraise for those changes, the first production run. And then we'll go from there. And I was in New York. I live, I live in Rhode Island um, and was in New York fundraising at the end of February first week of March, went back the second week of March, had a bunch of really great, hopeful, promising meetings. And it was on the train home on March 13th from New York to Rhode Island. And it was like every 30 minutes, someone who I had spoken to was like, I'm so sorry, I have to support the companies that I'm already supporting, or I don't know what's going to happen to the world. And then, you know, the last email I got was my kid's school being like, pick up your kids, school's out for at least two weeks. And I honestly thought, um, there was not going to be that we weren't going to see the product yeah. uh, come to fruition. So, um, so then what happened? How did you, uh, how do you make it through? Yeah. You know, it was a really, I think being embedded in a community of people who sick during a pandemic gives you a lot of perspective. Um, there were people who were getting diagnosed with cancer, wow. who were going to treatment alone, whose surgeries got canceled, people who were in different moments of their treatment of their um, of their health journey. And it was like, holy shit, how do we help these people, excuse me, right now? Because a lot of the reasons, like I'm cold sitting here right now, I could turn the heat up. I could put a blanket on you like you couldn't see if I had an electric blanket on my lab or something like that. But, and I really believe in this product and I believe it solves a problem that bothers women, some women 24 hours a day. Mm. But I was like, if you're getting diagnosed today, you are not getting the support that you need. And how do we help these people who have like immediate needs that are really acute. And so spent the first four months of COVID um, aligning with other brands doing online events, trying to create more content. We did um, a crowdfunding campaign on iFundWomen that was called Brilliantly Thankful that was really just about, um, like you could donate $5 and I would send a postcard to somebody in your life, handwritten note that mm. was encouraging. You could do a tribute to somebody who you thought was like a healthcare worker who was going above and beyond. And it was like, how do we create delightful little joyful moments during this horrible time? And that kept me really busy. <laughs> you know, there was so much to do and so many other brands trying to figure out how to, how to help, how to make it. And a lot of us banded together. Um, that obviously didn't help the business, but it certainly helped the community and it helped people. And it gave me the emotional fodder to keep going. Um, I ended up getting an introduction to the engineering team in Florida that uh, I'm still currently using during that time and had a Zoom call with them, talked to them about the product. They had just finished making a wearable breast pump mm. and understood women wanting to put things in their bras for different reasons. They thought about women's health. They knew about topical warming for lots of different applications, mm. everything from nursing to arthritis to pain management. Um, and we're super excited about my technology. So after that call, maybe a month or two went by, and then they offered to come on as investors. Um, and so they did the final phase of R&D based on that 2019-2020 user testing and manufactured the first 500 units as an investment. And it is um, in no small part because of them that I'm wow. still here. That sounds like an outstanding partnership. So did you always think you'd be a CEO? No, <laughs> um, I think 
Um, I certainly have always thought about wanting to work for myself. And that has come up a number of times in my life. You know, I said I worked in the arts. I used to work in museums. One of the things that would happen is artists, contemporary artists would send in sometimes email, sometimes mail, their materials, a letter, all this beautiful, really, they would put in a ton of effort. And we would be like, thanks, but no thanks, and send them their stuff back. And I realized through that process how little we do to help artists professionalize their practice. They might be the best artists, but if they don't know how to also be a business person or how to approach a museum or how to talk to a curator, their, might, their work might never get seen. And so I tried to start a business when my kids were really little, helping artists. And that was the first time where I was like, oh, I can totally work for myself. Mm. And then I was like, I, have, I, don't have, I don't have it in me to charge artists and I should do most of that work for free. So I think I've always had the bug. I um, love big, messy, complicated problems and um, am certainly someone who's self-motivated, but uh, never pictured being the CEO of a tech company, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you said that you made a list of things that you are, quote, crappy at when you started. Is that, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't mind, what, what were some of the things that were on that list? Oh, well, the first one was technology, right? Like I didn't know... I didn't even know what kind of engineer I needed. And the funny thing was, I, I, the first step for me was talking to artists who work in textiles, where I was like, hey, do you know anything about smart fabrics? Um, so the technology component was huge to advocate for a tech product. It's like a whole separate language. And I needed people who could speak that language and teach me how to ask for what I needed. Mm -hmm. um, don't know anything about marketing, didn't know anything about sales, certainly SEO, website building. Um, and branding, you know, like the stuff that you want to do really early on. I have a lot of friends who are editors, who are creative, who help me make some beautiful things. But, um, you know, unless somebody needs like a slide lecture where we talk about like different pieces of art, I really, my skill set was a little bit in left field for what I needed. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that a lot, in some ways that can be a strength because a lot of times a CEO will come in thinking that they know everything or that they're the best at every area and then they end up micromanaging or, or they just end up not empowering the team and then they become the, the point of failure. And I think that it's, it's you know, I, I've talked to a number of CEOs who, who kind of try to take that opposite approach and want to, you know, want to bring in people who know more than they do in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't know who's credited with the quote, like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I, I'm never the smartest person in the room. And I think I, I really have always valued surrounding myself with people that I learn from who push me. And uh, I think being in the arts, you like grow up in a culture of critique where it's safer to say like, here's a thing, tell me what you hate about it. How can I make it better? And it isn't as um, precious or ego driven that you're looking for people to help you improve in a way that's really different from other, other disciplines. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it's been fun to be like, I don't know how to do that. Um, and you do, do you want to talk to me about it? And people love to share their expertise. You know, anyone who's an expert in their field has worked very hard for a very long time to get there. And sharing that knowledge with other people just feels good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and so I also heard that you started an advisory board in the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that first meeting where I invited people to dinner 
to say, Hey, right. do you think this is a thing? Some of those people are still my advisors. And really early on, what that did for me was create some accountability. So I would email them every Sunday night and say, this is what I did last week. And this is what I'm going to do this week. And it would really just be like, I talked to Will and Will introduced me to this person. And that person had this idea. And here's the off the shelf parts that we're prototyping with to just find out some benchtop testing. And it, and those people would email me back and they'd say, Hey, did you think about this? Or, Oh, that reminded me I should introduce you to this person. And maybe a year into that, I realized I needed like a group of women who could test things for me, who also might be interested in being advisors. And as I said, I'm in Rhode Island. I have a, a bigger network in New York. Um, coming from the arts, just a lot of friends who've moved there, who are from all different moments of my life and thankfully had all different skill sets. And I invited this group of like maybe 20 women um, to meet at a friend's for like, cocktails and to talk to me about brilliantly. And I like humbly requested, would you be interested in being on my advisory board? And it's really a peer advisory board. It's not for equity. Mm -hmm. um, and we would meet pretty much bi-monthly before COVID. So I would send out an email and say, Hey, we're going to talk um, this month about communities. And then we would get together and maybe like eight of those people or 12 of those people would decide they could come and have something to say. And it would be like, tell me what over a glass of wine and it was super fun. What communities are you part of? What are, what's in person? What's online? What do you pay for? What has a bespoke app? What, you know, really trying to understand where people find value in these things. Mm -hmm. And then the awesome thing that came out of that was that a lot of those women hadn't met each other before. And some of them have done work together now or hired each other for different projects. So it's been a super valuable thing for me, but I think also for them. And anytime I talk to a new founder, I encourage them to do the same thing, like ping the people in your network. Who did you work your ass off for in your first job that might help you now or might talk to you now or might weigh in or have an intro for you? Because I think there's this myth that we have to go at it alone. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I will say that in my first business, I might have been better at that than than my second business where, you know, because I and probably it had something to do with the fact that, you know, my first business just starting out you know, I hadn't gone to business school. I hadn't, you know, there actually, I didn't even have a background working in the private sector because I started off on Capitol Hill working in politics. And um, so I kind of had this really just sort of shameless, I want to ask for advice. I want to know, you know, I just tell me whatever you know about business. And, you know, I would just try to pick everybody's brain. And, um, and I, I think that's something that, it, you know, if founders don't do that, you know, I think, I think it's a mistake. I mean, I think you, I think people want to share knowledge and, and it really helps to, to just go out and ask. Yeah. I like the word shameless too. You know, <laughs> it, it's maybe has a little negative connotation that I want to strip away. Cause I sure. do, if you can approach it, approach your not knowing without shame, you're more curious and you're more willing to learn and you're more willing to listen. I think we just as people do a lot of listening for the sake of responding and not a lot of listening to learn. And this was a moment where it was like, no, 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 everything I'm doing right now is about me learning so I can do this better. Yeah. And I had really different, much more authentic conversations with, with those people. Cause I was like, Hey, I don't know anything about what you do. Would you tell me, would you help? And you hear really great, amazing things and stories, not just the professional development part, but you open up in a different way. And then people hold that mirror back at you and do the same thing. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think I couldn't agree more. I, I really think of that as a superpower if you cultivate it to, to ask questions. And, and I actually do some coaching um, uh, just as a volunteer uh, in athletics. I coach on a, a, a youth wrestling team. And one of the things I tell them is you, you want to approach things with a beginner's mindset. You know, you may know a lot about something, but that doesn't mean that you can't continue to perfect it, continue to learn more. And I think that beginner's mindset, I agree with you. I want to sh- take the shame or the, whatever the word is, the, uh, the negative connotation out of that. Cause it really is a beginner's mindset. You know, it's like, you know, just, we want to learn. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about challenges as CEO. Did you, um, you know, I'm sure you've encountered plenty of challenges. Um, you know, do you have any memorable mistakes or failures or however you want to describe yeah, it? So many. <laughs> I think, um, you know, and I'm giving myself a little bit of my own medicine here when I was talking about not feeling like you need to go at it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there was a moment a few years ago, like 2018, where I had to have surgery. Um, I had a growth on my parathyroid and parathyroids are like, they're four little things on, on your thyroid gland, which is in your neck. And they're like the size of a grain of rice. And one of them had a growth on it and you would not believe how it was wreaking havoc on my body. Mm. And I, I was, I was honestly acting a little bit like I had dementia. My blood calcium level was really high. When your electrolytes are off, all kinds of screwy things happen. And I was terrified to tell anyone. I was like, Nope, can't tell anybody. No one can know. Of course my like immediate family knew, but, um, went in for surgery and literally took 24 hours off because I was like, I've taken investment money from people. I'm trying to build a product. We're supposed to be starting, um, prototyping these beta units to send out to testers. And if people think I'm sick, no one's going to support me. Mm -hmm. And I went through this whole moment of being like genuinely ill and trying to figure out the diagnosis and having surgery and, and then trying to jump right back in. And it took me a long time to be like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) You're working in a community of people who are going to understand that and are going to support you. And the business cannot be well unless I'm well. And I was so unwell for this period of like almost a year Wow. that it took to like re-regulate myself and again, learn how to live in a body that, that felt different. And I think that is honestly my biggest mistake. I make mistakes every single day from like sending an email too fast to hiring the wrong person, thankfully short term. There's a million business learnings that happen, but it really, you have to figure out how to be okay to deal with all of those business learnings. And that means like putting yourself first. And I don't think many founders and CEOs that I know have learned that the hard way yet because some people live in a body that's so healthy and, or can just keep grinding. And I just don't. And so, having to figure out how to be well so my business could be well was a really important lesson. Yeah, I think that's a lesson that a lot of CEOs really would do well to think about and prepare for because it's going to happen to so many people throughout their career. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a that's a good one. And I will also just jump on to, to something else you, you said about making mistakes every day. I've found that the best CEOs are the ones who are comfortable with that. You know, they're comfortable with it. They, I mean, they want to, they don't want to make mistakes and they're trying their best, obviously. But, uh, but at the same time, 
they know you have to be decisive and that means there are going to be mistakes. And if you're not comfortable with that to a certain extent, I think it, the anxiety and the stress is maybe would make it not a good fit for somebody to be in that role. Totally. And like, sometimes I'll see something stupid that I did and like, you can laugh at yourself. Like I'll literally laugh out loud here by myself. And other times I'm like, Oh my God, like I have to lay on the floor for a minute, like reset. But it is, it's every single day. If you're doing something you've never done before, there's no moment in human development where we expect the first time you do something, you're going to be great at it. Like we don't, like a baby's first steps, very cute, not perfect steps. Like the athletes train for years to be good at what they're doing. Like if you're the first time doing some new business endeavor, especially with a product that's never been made, you don't have a competitor, you don't have a thing to sort of like model yourself after there, it's going to be absolutely full of mistakes. Um, and as long as you're learning from them and you're not taking them, like they don't, I don't think my mistakes define me, but they certainly are why I've encountered any amount of success. Like, Oh, don't do that again. Do this other thing. Yeah. And, and I've also, I'm a big believer that if the idea is good enough at the strategic level, it, you know, that you should be able to make a lot of mistakes and still launch, still, still grow, still get the, the product out there, you know? Um, and, and that's why the, pro, but that's also why the product has to be so good because you're inevitably there are going to be mistakes and so and so really you know you've got to be targeting a good profit margin you've got to be targeting a good you know a, a product that really does fill a need and as long as that's true um you know a, you know well the more that that's true the more forgiving everything else is yeah totally and i think none of us have a crystal ball right like who yeah. you make something you might know and I've, I've heard that I have the opposite problem. I think there's a lot of people who come up with an idea that's like, everybody can use this. And yes. then it's a long time to narrow it down and say, okay, yeah, sure. Everybody, everybody can use that, but who's going to use it. And I started with this like sliver of people that I was like, I think these people need this. I know I do. I've talked to a bunch of people who do too. Let's give it a whirl and learned that the market for it is much bigger and that the technology is applicable to all these other things. And I think in both scenarios, you have to be willing to say like, I knew what I knew at the time and I'm, it's going to morph and change. And that means that everything else, you might have like a North star mission that you should stay true to, but all of the, the path to get you there is so meandering. And there are moments where you might learn that the person who you thought was your person isn't your person. It's just like anything else, like a relationship or whatever. Like this worked really well right now, but now we're two years in and actually that's my person or these are my people or that's the market that really needs it and they're going to use it for something else. And it's been wild now that the product is on the market to see that like women stuff this in their pants for cramps. Like women who have endometriosis, people who have like just crippling menstrual cramps, um, nursing moms are using it. Women who are just cold for other health issues or, or because they want it for skiing. It's like, whoa, okay, cool. Like, let's talk to you and learn about how and why and when you use it. Um, and I think, like, I want to know that. I, I, and maybe I shouldn't say this on a podcast, but everybody who orders it, I look them up. I'm like, hey, who is this person? Um, after I like sometimes tear up that I get another order. And, and I want to know that, but I think there are some people who just make assumptions about who's using their product 
or service yeah. who, who they're making it for. So the listening really early on is so key to figuring out this. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think I think that it's an outstanding model to be so close to the customer and so and just following them along their, you know, their path with the product. Um, and I, I'll also say that I think most many people do have the opposite issue where they want to be all things to all people. And I, I think that's the quickest recipe for for a failed product launch or, you know, and there, you know, I think that the key thing is to figure out how small of a niche can you possibly get it in, get things into, um, you know, and and then as long as that small, small niche is, is big enough to be successful, then you're good. You know, you don't need to go and, and probably you're going to find that there are many other uh, communities and groups that are going to want it. But really focusing in the beginning is just such important, I think, uh, strategic, you know, uh, you know uh, intent. Yeah, it's been awesome, too, because it allows me to talk to all of those people and to tend to know how to reach, yeah. them, frankly, like, if you wanted to be all things to all people, where do you start with marketing and sales and finding them? Um, we are all bombarded with ads. And if you don't find, I think, people who will try it, who understand you and and any early company is is the team, is the founder and, and whoever else is supporting them. So if it's people who know you, who follow you, who believe in you, who try the thing, who love the thing, who buy the thing and then buy it for someone else too, which has started to happen and is my honestly favorite outcome is like somebody bought the product and liked it so much they bought it for a friend or a family member. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that I even feel really good about growth. Actually, I don't want people to buy it and like leave it on a shelf or never open it. Or like mm. I, there's so much stuff in the world and I really want to create a useful thing that is meaningful um, and not be like this. Everybody can use this, even though, yeah, maybe everybody who has a heating pad in their house could use this and maybe someday they will. But right now um, knowing every customer and talking to them and hearing their experience with it and what they would change and how it could be better is going to help me figure out the right way to grow and not just grow for the sake of growth. Yeah. So since we're, since we're talking about overall growth, how, how, uh, how big a company do you want this to be? It's a really good question. And it's a one I struggle with. Um, you know, we talked about the fundraising and different fundraising implications have different impact on my life. And so does the size of the company. Yeah. I think one of um, an, an obstacle for me personally as a CEO is thinking about how big is the team and yeah. that first team versus the second team versus the third team. And, um, you know, we're learning so much right now about the other markets and opportunities for the technology and the product that I, I know I need um, like three to five people in the short term to really help me meet the needs of the breast cancer community, which is what I'm mission driven to do while we explore these other potential futures for the technology and future product iterations. And a lot of that is through collaborations. So depending on if we align with other organizations, what maybe something in the nursing space, new mom space, um, a company that's already working in the menstrual space, we could have a much larger femtech play that's very collaborative. And I'm, to be perfectly honest, in a moment of exploring what I want that to be. Yeah. Um, what do I want the future for the company to be? Am I 
competing with other people in the space? Are we collaborating? Are we white labeling or licensing? Um, because manufacturing is not where my heart is. I don't think I ever want to be the CEO of a manufacturing company that has a suite of products and that mm -hmm. our biggest things are about supply chain. So mm -hmm. I'm at a moment of really trying to understand that about myself and about, about the company. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing to, to think through. I know I remember early on in, in my career in business, I got advice from somebody who said that uh, there are certain types of people who, who can go from zero to a million with a business. Uh, there are, then there are different people who can take a business from one to 10 million. And, and then there's a whole nother group that goes from 10 to a hundred. And, you know, with, and, and this person was talking specifically about venture backed startups for the most part. And, you know, but I still, but I, I really took that to heart. And I, you know, for me, I really like the, I, I, you know, for a long time, my goal was zero to one, you know, I wanted to be capable of doing that. That was a huge psychological mind milestone for me. Um, and, you know, but, but I also, you know, really want to focus in the one to 10 range. You know, I think that's a, you know, that, that's, that's a, now for me, I don't have venture capital. I don't have investment of any kind. You know, my, my business is a services business right, right now that is, uh, it's, it grows out of revenue. So I, I have easier considerations in some ways, you know, than, than somebody who, well, than, than you would have, because you have to, uh, you know, you have to fund product development and distribution and manufacturing and all of that stuff. Yeah. Hardware, like a connective hardware, software device yeah. is really complicated and labor intensive and capital intensive. And I think, you know, if I'm being honest to you and the listeners and to myself, I am a um, very early stage person. I love when it's messy. I love pivoting. I love solving the problems. I like um, collaborating, working with other people and talking to the users and building the community. And there's going to be a moment I know where I'm like, you know what, this is, uh, we've outgrown each other. Mm. what I'm good at and what the company is good at will probably become two different things. And the other, the flip side of that to be totally transparent is working in a, in a community of people who have a health issue is really psychologically hard. Mm. Um, there, I would say this fall, there's probably been nine women who I've known who've died and mm. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not an oncologist. I didn't like, I signed up for this, right? Like I decided to build this community, but it's really hard. And the process of starting to build the community and build content and create and have these discussions. And I do, I do a lot of interviewing other women. Um, I've had to mine every single part of my grief, every part of my life experience, losing my mom, being a caretaker, becoming a mom without a mom, getting divorced, like every, and how that relates to cancer. And I, I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity to do that because I realized a lot of things about myself and how I was parenting and how I was living my life and what kind of partner I could be. And I think it's all gotten better. I think I've become a better person and a better version of myself through this business, but I don't think I can do it forever. I didn't have that calling like a doctor has or a nurse has or someone, you know, like I have a friend who was a hospice nurse and I was like, man, you are like a gift from the universe to these people that you can do it. I can't do it. I've, um, I have really, I like took myself on a mini break during COVID and was, and had that realization. I can't do this forever and be okay. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to set it up for success and that I don't want to have brilliantly have a legacy that really does genuinely support women in this community. Yeah. 
Wow, that's really, uh, really powerful to hear that. Um, my wife uh, has worked in social services. So she was, she did communications for um, nonprofits that would operate homeless shelters and food pantries and things like that. And, and, you know, and I, so I saw how draining it would, it can be to, to, to work in a community that is, you know, that, that has so many challenges. And, you know, I, I could see how, how emotionally demanding it would be to be working in the health space. Now, I really hadn't thought about that before, uh, uh, before sitting down with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you have investors and your phone rings during dinner, you answer that call. Yeah. And for me, I also have all of these community members yeah. and I'm in writing groups and I'm in, you know, like there's all of these ways that I know that like this woman has this scan today and I'm going to check in on her. Mm. And I know that somebody else is trying to going through fertility treatments. And I'm going to be like thinking about you because I can't not do it. Yeah. And I know that that is part of my personality and that I don't want to be someone who learns how to build a wall. I don't yeah. want to do it. And without that wall, I can't do it forever, but yeah. I don't want to not do it and really yeah. uh, change the experience. That's really fascinating. So I, I mentioned how I do this volunteer activity with, with these, the, this high school wrestling team. And, you know, it's very, that is a very emotionally involved activity yeah. um, you know, for all kinds of reasons, but it's, there's a big disconnect between that activity and my business. And, I, you know, so it's actually a break for me. You know, I can, I can, you know, I go from the emotionally demanding business to an emotionally demanding side activity. And, so, you know, but it has the effect of being kind of a, you know, just, you know, it, it, it does really kind of allow me to relax and, and get outside the business. So I, I it, it's, it's hard for me to imagine actually having, you know, this, the, the, community and the business being so being completely interconnected because that really would be nonstop, I guess. Yeah. And it's my personal life too, right? Yeah. Like every, yeah. this business really is every part of my life. And I think that's why I feel so motivated to keep going and yeah. why I survived COVID and why in the moments, like there were times when I had less than a hundred dollars personally and professionally and was like, no, I'm not going to quit. Like, I'm not going to quit. I'm just not, you know, there are, I'm perfectly happy to quit when something's not going to work, but I can see that this is going to work. And I knew that I could get there. And I That's so awesome. wanted to see this product happen. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it's draining in a different way. And, but it's also really fulfilling. And I think on the other side of this, like when I turn the page to a new chapter, I think I'm going to feel really good about it. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's really uh, that's really an inspiring uh, story and an inspiring approach. Thanks. Every once in a while, I get really jealous of a founder who's like making beautiful swimsuits or something. <laughs> like yeah. that sounds so nice. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you um, doing anything like Vistage or um, you know? Uh, I can't remember what they're called, like the young president's organization or any of these, any of these groups that allow business leaders to kind of almost like emotional support groups for business leaders. Like, are you in any CEO groups that get, where you're able to get, you know, just kind of relate to one another, that sort of thing? Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm part of an organization called dreamers and doers, mm. which is um, for underrepresented female founders 
um, that is amazing. And anytime I meet a, a woman or someone who identifies as a woman who's a founder or who is a coach, something where they're working for themselves or doing something that's sort of alternative, I'm like, join this community because it is most certainly a safe space where you can go and say, I'm freaking out. But you can also say, I'm trying to um, amplify my reach and I need yeah. PR opportunities and people will come to bat for you. Um, there, you know, I've joined, I'm not a joiner just generally. <laughs> and, uh, I've joined more things in the last four years than ever in my whole life. Um, because it was really easy to see early on how isolating it is to be a solo founder and that you could get lost in that. Um, the like not going and engaging with people every day, not showing up at an office, not needing to get dressed, not like all of those things that you, that we, that humans need, you're creating this thing where, where you don't need it. And I, I would say it was maybe only six months before I was like, Oh, right. I have to start joining things and talking to other people. And it helps expand your network. It helps expand your learning. It allows you to have vetted, you know, service people. Like if I need a lawyer, I'm like, I know exactly what group to post in to say, Hey, who's got a great IP attorney. And that then they come with a reference. So all of those things, um, they're not necessarily the, I think some of the go-to CEO or, um, things people think of, but I've definitely joined or created some of those, um, support systems for myself. I think that that sounds great. I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't think there's any, any wrong way to get that type of support. I think it's important that we all have that. And so I think, I think that's great that you've got access to that community. Where can people, where can people get the product? Where, so how much does it cost and, and where, where can people get it? Yeah. Um, so it's available right now on our website, brilliantly.co. And that's our Instagram and our Facebook and our LinkedIn. We're brilliantly.co everywhere. Um, it's 180 bucks for two. And, uh, you know, if we think about that, lots of people are spending 300 bucks on their headphones. It feels like a pretty good deal if you're somebody who needs this. Um, but I do know that that's outside the reach for a lot of the people, especially who are struggling with medical bills already. And we're, you know, the future plans include going through the regulatory process, getting insurance reimbursement in some way, because, um, you know, there are many, many moments in my life where I couldn't have afforded the, the product that I'm making right now. Well, I mean, I think that it is, it's important to note that in the beginning, the products are going to be more expensive. And so the people who are buying the product now are helping fund it, I'm sure, in, in a certain, you know, in a sense. I mean, they're showing the, the traction so that it'll help you get funding. And, you know, I think at scale, the product prices often come down. And so I think, um, you know, I, th I think it's important to just you know, note that, that I think it's not unusual at all to, I mean, if we look at Tesla, they started with their most expensive, uh, yeah. uh cars and, and then, and then started coming down to the, to the lower priced cars. And I think that's a, a, a good funding strategy. Yeah. And it kind of has to be that way because to your yeah. point, most startups aren't capitalized in a way that they can right. do something at scale, nor do they have the sales outlets for that. So it doesn't make sense anyway. And really, especially during COVID in this moment when supply chain is such a mess, it, and I, I think probably for anyone who's making a physical product, supply chain is a problem right now. The cost of everything is so much higher. Most, most people at my phase are losing money, and we certainly are among that group. Um, 
and I'm happy to bore anyone with the details about Bluetooth chips specifically if they want to hear about it. But um, yeah, it is, you know, you're, pro you're proving the product, you're proving people want to use it, you get testimonials, you understand how to make it better. It, it's just a phase of the, yeah. of the business. You know, I actually would like to hear if you if you don't mind, I would love to hear about how what any supply chain ch challenges that you'd like to to comment on because that is you're right, everybody's getting hit with that. H how is that affecting you right now? Yeah, you know, um we tried to get ahead of it and last spring ordered our electrical boards and our bluetooth chips probably months before we were going to need them and thought everything was good to go, planned a pre-sale campaign to start in June. Mm -hmm. And with the intent on fulfilling orders, maybe like three or four weeks later, and four days before the pre-sale campaign went live, and anybody who has planned anything, the pre-sale campaign isn't just like you click a button, right? We had like a try-on party and there was an event and there was photographer, videographer, um, just a ton of assets. We had social media influencers, people who I'd mailed out prototypes to, a whole bunch of things, like months of planning was for one day. And four days before that day, the company that was supposed to be assembling the boards sent an email that was like, just kidding, um, we don't have your Bluetooth chips and we can't find them where they'll be in stock until May of 2022. So you're going to have to find them yourself. And I'm like, wow, sure. I probably sent a hundred emails that day to just people who were like tech people, accelerator people, engineers who I'd met other founders who were making products that I knew had Bluetooth chips. My engineers honestly worked tirelessly to try to find what we needed. And, um, I signed a PO on a Monday night at 11 p.m. and the pre-sale campaign went live at 5 a.m. Tuesday morning. Wow. And, and I also was like, that we don't have them in hand. They could get stuck in customs. They haven't been quality controlled here in the States yeah. by my team yet. Like, it was awful. I think it, it felt like another moment where it might not happen after it was like getting teased that it was gonna happen. Um, and it just stunk. The day of the pre-sale campaign, all of these amazing people came out to support me. And anytime somebody would say anything to me, I would just burst into tears. You know, I was like, I know in the grand scheme of all of the things that are happening right now in the world with COVID and with health crises, and it's unimaginable. And that I'm like crying about Bluetooth chips is so stupid. But it was, it was everything felt like it was about that moment. And, you know, it's, and we don't know. There's so much uncertainty. And it's sort of another lesson. I don't know that I needed another one. But like the really good stuff and the really annoying, frustrating, bad stuff is all happening simultaneously. There's never a day that's like the best day, or there's never, even on the worst days, really nice things probably happen too. So the, the supply chain stuff um, has made me rethink how we wanna scale, where we wanna produce things, how we can get ahead of a lot of those problems. Mm -hmm. But it is very real. Yeah. And the cost of it from everyone's time to actually the physical cost, we ended up paying four times more than we originally thought per chip. Wow. Uh, so it was, it was a messy, ugly moment. And when anybody asks me about my cost of goods, I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I have to lie to you. <laughs>
I think that's a really good story though. And I think it just, I mean, that just shows how, you know, you're able to push through and, and, you know, cause there are a lot of moments with any business where you think you're not going to be able to get through this next challenge. I mean, especially with launching a product and uh, you know, that's, that sounded like, you know, that was a tough one. Yeah, it certainly wasn't my favorite. And I met a man really early on who had, was a co-founder of a medical device company. And he basically was like, Kristen, every problem you're going to have every problem if you're making a hardware product they're going to be in shipping containers the day that you were supposed to have them somewhere else and he was like just be prepared for every single problem and i was like he doesn't know me (laughs) (laughs) here i am on the other end of that but yeah it's um it is a very real problem and i even know founders who are making um in the apparel industry who are still impacted by um the shipping container in the Suez Canal, like yeah. it, it's an unfathomable, huge problem to get sorted. Yeah. Yeah, it, it sure is. Um, I've got clients all over the place that are infected, you know, one way or another. Um, well, I really want to thank you for, for coming on the show today. Uh, I hope uh, all the listeners will go to brilliantly.co and, and check out the product and place an order. You know, I think this is, it sounds like an awesome product. And um, thanks again for coming on. I know that, that a lot of founders and CEOs will benefit from hearing about all your experiences. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And of course, I'm happy to talk to other founders, people working in women's health. If you're someone who is impacted by breast cancer and looking for resources, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. And how, how should they reach out? Should they go, is your contact information on the social media and on the website? Contact on social media and on the website, but you can reach out anytime at hello at brilliantly.co and, and somebody will get back to you in 24 hours. Well, thanks again for being on Road to CEO. Thank you. 